Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites, and it's our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. Initially, I had a number of different titles in mind for this message. However, it appears by the providence of God, a more appropriate title would be, Beware that you not die in your sins. A few weeks ago, while doing the current fellowship study in Hosea, I mentioned an email I received from a sister in Christ. The emailer stated that she didn't want to spend two hours listening to something that she doesn't agree with. I believe Jews are God's chosen people, she said, and they crucify him, and doesn't change the fact that that is who he has chosen. A second part of that email exchange was a retort that I did not believe Jesus was God. Now anyone who knows me has ever listened to anything that has dribbled out of my mouth knows that statement is certainly not true. I want to share with you something that I hope will help all of you. I did take that personal and you understand that I should as it was directed at me. But what I didn't state was that there was another party which was also accused. This brother in Christ was called, and I listened for a good 45 minutes to what he had to say. And it is evident he believed Jesus is the Son, cited numerous passages of scriptures to support his belief that Jesus is the Son of God. I accepted what he said and told him so. I told him I also believe that, but hold the belief as true with a further foundational basis as the belief in that truth requires it. I asked if he was satisfied that I had reached out to my brother in Christ and had heard him out in Christian love and spirit. And he indicated that I had. I told him in the coming weeks I wanted to evaluate my belief in association with his and in the future share those thoughts with him. I've done so. And he's entitled to time and the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal and evaluate any truth that I may have been able to convey in prayerful expectation that our fellowship in Christ is strengthened and may continue, I do know this brother and have known for a long time. We have discussed matters of Christianity and Christian faith on numerous occasions. And that's why I reached out as I realized, since it was not true of me, a belief that that Jesus is not God, it must be that God had a purpose in moving her to so state it that way that I would know of his belief and that God was potentially calling on me to open the door of further understanding for him or alternatively to open that door for me. I pray that it is both which is to occur because I know it is the will of the Father that neither of us would perish. I believe all of you can relate to this emailer and that exchange, as we've all had similar experiences either with acquaintances or family or both. Some of the titles I had in mind, I was inclined to believe that many would be offended by the title alone and therefore would not listen at all. Still, others may listen but disregard the implications of its intention. 
However, I can assure you it is salvational and is proven to be. With that being the case, it is my prayer the warning conveyed be heeded and understood. I may be no Pastor Peters or any other favorite Christian orator or even your pastor. So if I'm an heir, correct in Christian love. Now, let me say this clearly in the beginning so no one will attempt to skirt this issue with fancy double talk. Most Christians are revolted by the Jehovah Witnesses' New World Translation Bible having changed John chapter 10 verse 33 to read, quote, Make yourself a God, end quote, in order to better facilitate their doctrine that Jesus was not God. However, some of these same people, and I would dare say a great majority of them, never seem to be as revolted by modern Jews who do the same. But I won't digress on that at this time. In this message, I will biblically prove to you believing Jesus is God is salvational, and those connecting themselves with those who don't are indeed in danger of losing what salvation they believe in. This message is not intended to be exhaustive in nature, but it is intended, in a limited form and scope, to cause you to at least contemplate and consider, if you will, the efficacy of the danger and the warning it is designed to be. That said, open your hearts and your ears, and let's begin. We have undertaken a number of studies over the years to address different topics and engage in expository study of different parts of the biblical record. The reason this message will not be exhaustive at this time is because it has to do with the deity of Christ. And in order to fully do that, I believe would require a number of messages or hours to do so. Some aspects of Christ's deity have been addressed in other messages without specifically referencing it as a message regarding Christ's deity, but clearly convey that deity in a number of different ways, when you take the time to simply keep it in mind while digesting those. Turn to John chapter 5. This chapter conveys the record of Christ healing the man with affirmity of 38 years at the pool of Bethsaida. In verse 6, when Jesus knew how that he had been a long time in that case, he said to him, quote, Will thou be made whole? Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Then the context clearly indicates that the Jews asked why he was walking with his bed. Dropping down to verse 14, Jesus finds him and says, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. At verse 15, the man told the Jews that it was Jesus. And at verse 16, it states, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, at verse 17, Christ says, My Father works hitherto, and I work. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. A few things we can glean here, the first of which is, don't neglect speaking the truth just because it's believed that we may be in danger by it. Secondly, Truth is going to enrage hypocrites and sinners when that truth or that good work exposes it. Third, the truth will incite accusation against for the insinuation of the hypocrisy. They will accuse you, essentially, of what they do. 
I think the rest of John chapter 5 you can read on your own. However, these Pharisee Jews clearly understood fully the force of the Father works and I also work, or he would have corrected their thinking. But Christ doesn't do that. Rather, he consistently affirms this equality. Turn now from chapter 5 in John to chapter 8 in John. Now, for the sake of time, I won't go into great detail every single passage in the book of John chapter 8. In this Gospel of John chapter 8, we're going to center in on verse 18, 19, 21, and 24. Let's go there now. Verse 18, I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. 19, Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. 24. I said therefore unto you, that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Now, as we continue on, you will notice that in chapter 8, verse 33, these Jews, Pharisees, they wasted no time claiming Abraham as their father. And Christ's response is at John 8:34 to 43 and we'll go there. Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Let's continue with verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Let's continue to verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Let's stop here. Let's review what the scripture teaches us. These scribes and Pharisees wasted no time claiming Abraham as their father. As sons of Abraham, they believed they were one with Abraham. In other words, equal with the Abrahamic blessings and the status, never being in bondage, and so forth, they claimed. Hebrew language carries the connecting connotation that they fully were aware of. That is why they said they were Abraham's seed, to connect themselves with Abraham, the children of the promise of Abraham. However, they either were not, or they were not acting in the likeness and image of Abraham. Are you following me? Christ clearly picks up on this, because at John 8.41, Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Now, they have just connected themselves not only with Abraham, but they have also connected themselves with the Father. 
God. This scripture now cross-references to Isaiah chapter 63, verses 15 to 19 we're going to look at for context, and I read, Look down from heaven, and behold, from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. End quote. In light of this, Christ's response at John 8.42 is priceless. He says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Dropping down to verse 47. He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Verse 49. I honor my Father, and you do dishonor me. Verse 54. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say that I know him not, I shall be a liar, like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and saw it, and was glad. Verse 58 and 9. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And I'll stop there. Just ask yourself this question. I know we skipped through that chapter 8, but we hit on the fine points for you to ask a very fundamental question. These in this exchange had equated themselves not only with Abraham, but also with the father. Who was the liar? The answer, of course, is obvious. Christ is also propounding a principle unto them, and wastes no time conveying it. Again, Christ at John chapter 5, verses 19 to 24. I want to read it all. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raises up the dead, and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. For the Father judges, for the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son, honors not the Father which has sent him. Would to God that we could fully comprehend the meaning and significance of the principle. If I do not the will and the word of my Father, and I did not at times, do I not dishonor my Father? The answer is, of course, yes. 
In this principle, in perfect practice, I and my Father are one, are we not? And of course, we are. Christ needs to make no denial, nor is he required to apologize or retract his statement. At John chapter 10 now, verse 30, he continued and stated that I and my Father are one, as he did in John chapter 17, 11, that they may be one, meaning Israel and Judah, as we are one, and in 17.22, that they may be one even as we are one. Perfect obedience is perfect unity. You can't tell the Father from the Son, and vice versa. In so doing, are we not gods? Well, according to Christ at John chapter 10, verse 34, quote, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? The word gods here is number 2316, it is theos. Besides the general meaning of deities or divinity, it refers to the things of God, his counsels, interests, or whatever can be in any respect likened unto God, or resemble him in any way. And the fourth definition is God's representative or vice-regent, as of magistrates and judges. And isn't it just fitting that his next statement at verse 35, quote, If he called them gods unto whom the word of Yahweh came, and the scripture cannot be broken, verse 36, Say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemes, because I said, I am the Son of God? And then guess what? Verse 35 cross-references to Romans 13.1, Quote, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. End quote. Who are therefore ordained of God? John 10.35 tells us, Unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, precisely 180 degrees out of phase with the church world today. Sons of Christ, acting on the authority of the Father as sons, are to bring all under the dominion of the Father's kingdom, in righteousness, doing as the Father does and wills. Not writing unjust weights and measures, and legislating and laws to kill babies because they can't, you know, exert any right, and submitting to the laws of men, and on and on. While the church tells us we are to obey these ungodly decrees of men because we are to submit to our rulers, don't you know? Of course, any thinking, studious Christian knows the church can't say anything because they've sold the church as well as the members for a mess of pottage called a right to exist under a 501c3 corporate charter with the state instead of as the ambassadors, the gods, Yahweh's vice-regents, magistrates, and judges. Now, additionally, we're going to go back to John chapter 8, verses 24 and 28 specifically. You may not have noticed, but there is a word in this passage that ought to be in italics, or some otherwise noted as not in the original manuscripts. The word is He. Verse 24 says, For if you believe not that I am, and then the word He, you shall die in your sins. Verse 28 says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He. This cross-references to Exodus 3.14. 
just exactly as recorded and conveyed by Christ at verse 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now why did Christ say they seek to kill him? And why does the scripture record that they picked uh, or that they sought to pick up stones to stone him? We know it cannot be due to blasphemy because Leviticus 24:11 to 16, the word blasphemeth is 53:44, it is nakab, it is to curse, and also call lal is 7043 curse, and that means to lightly esteem of little account, insignificant, treat with contempt or dishonor. Can I ask, well, how did Christ lightly esteem God, holding him in contempt, or hold God as insignificant or of little account? It appears to me he highly esteemed the Father. In fact, said, if you don't believe me, that I am sent of the Father, believe for the work's sake. And John 10.33, they respond and say, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makes thyself God. Well, as we just understood, it couldn't be for the cause of blasphemy that they sought to stone him, because they're inconsistent. The inconsistency is shown at John 10.36. Christ asks, Say you of him, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, that thou blasphemous, because I said, I am the Son of God? So, there are two charges on the table here, the charge of blasphemy and that he makes himself God. This is incredulous to Christ. He gives them another way out of their intention to kill him and rather to believe him. Verses 37 and 38, you can read that on your own. It's not insignificant just because they deemed it blasphemous doesn't at all constitute that it was. But if they are going to get the Romans' authority to allow to authorize the killing of one in their midst, the crime had better be one that the state recognizes. This is not a case of just a mere accusation as to becoming one flesh or united in spirit. The only way that it could possibly rise to a capital offense would be to have claimed to be God or to have cursed God. This is why we have to recognize what it is that they understood. He didn't curse God, but at 10.33 they said, Makest thyself God. Very clear. It is they who accused of blasphemy. They accused him of what it is that they do. Christ said they dishonor God. They hold God in contempt, because they say, but do not. Make no mistake. The Pharisees had no doubt what Christ was conveying in those statements, I and the Father are one. We don't have time to go to these scriptures, but go to John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45, and John 13, 19 and 20, and John 14, 6 to 9. In John 14, 69, this scripture, Christ unequivocally declares to Philip that seeing Christ, he has seen the Father. If we deny Christ as God, we deny Isaiah 7:14, where we learn that there shall bear a son be born and his name be called Emmanuel. We deny Isaiah 9:6, Matthew 1:22-23, and take a look at Acts 13:15-41. 
Paul's summation of the gospel of the redemption of Israel by their God Yahweh in the image and likeness of the Son. I know there has been a lot here to digest and there's even more, but I've got to keep moving along. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25 to 29 Whereof I am made a minister to fulfill the word of God. Skipping down. Verse 26 Even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints. And let's stop here. This word mystery cross-references to Romans 16.2 Ephesians 3.9 and 1 Corinthians 2.7 We'll have to go there on our own. But suffice it to say they refer to the mystery but now is made manifest to his saints. That cross-references to Matthew 13.11 and 2 Timothy 1.10. 2 Timothy 1.10 in context conveys not to be ashamed of his, that is Christ's gospel, and now is made manifest by Jesus Christ our Savior's appearance. And Matthew 13.11 is in Christ's own words, quote, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Continue now with Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, meaning nations. Again, let's stop. This verse cross-references to Romans 9.23, Ephesians 1.7, and Ephesians 3.8. In Romans 9.23, it speaks of God making known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Romans 9.23 cross-references to Romans 2.4, Ephesians 1.7, and Romans 8.28-30. While you're in 9.24 of Romans, let's just quick see what it tells us. It tells us that not Judah only, but also of the Gentiles. That also cross-references to uh, Romans 3.29 and Romans 8.28 to 30. Romans 28, excuse me, Romans 8, verses 28 to 31 conveys those called according to his purpose, whom he foreknew, he predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his Son, whom he called he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. This is the significance of the mystery. Is he the God of Judah only? Is he not also of the Gentiles, meaning the nations? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And who are those Gentiles? We have done message after message and fellowship after fellowship disclosing the truth of who these Gentiles are. They are the Israelites. They are the tribes of Israel who were cast off and divorced, as Jeremiah 3.8 said. They were driven off into far lands. Time and time again, no matter where we go, we are led to the knowledge of the mystery, God once again becoming the God of the cast-off Gentile nations of his predestinated children of Israel. Once again, let's return to Colossians 1, verse 26. Even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from the generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. 
to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Dropping down to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, What great conflict I have for you, that is, those at Colossae and Laodicea. I'm going to stop here because that word conflict is probably not understood, so I think we should expound upon it. It's number 73 in the Greek, and it's aguan. It means the place of contest or contest for a prize, an action at law or trial. It derives from number 71, which is ago, which is spelled just like ago. And it does help a bit, as it further indicates, to lead, lead by oneself, to direct, to guide, to move or impel of forces and influences on the mind. What is Paul impelling to influence upon the mind, knit together in love? and to the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. This cross-references in particular to Ephesians 1, 8-9. In that passage of scriptures, Paul conveys it was, quote, made known unto us the mystery of his will, which is all unveiled in the preceding verses of 3, 4, and 5 of Ephesians 1. So read the entire Ephesians 1, 1 through 12. You'll find that it was according as he had chosen us before the foundations of the world, predestinated, and according to the good pleasure of his will. Now it should be clear to the Bible student that in these passages of Colossians, and the others that we've read, and these here of Ephesians, Paul's specific intention thus far is, one, the warning. Secondly, the earnest intention of the teaching, or the doctrine. Third, the doctrine being the mystery of the richness of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which we learned from Romans 9.24 was not just given to Judah only, but to the Gentiles, meaning the nations of Israel. Also, in every direction we are drawn, we come to the understanding of a people predestinated, a people foreknown, that Paul seeks to inform, lead, impel, and influence the mind of what work God has done in Christ Jesus. Now, at this point, some may respond, well, what Christian doesn't know what Christ has done? However, there's more to it, which Paul is exhorting to their knowledge. Specifically, who it was done for. Colossians 2.4 And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Words that appeal, perhaps, but lack the substance necessary with sound reasoning. Sound reasoning has conveyed biblically Paul's intention. The Gentile nations of Israel who formerly had not mercy but now are receiving mercy through Christ. This is a mystery, a treasure of wisdom, 
we could, with an abundance of time, continue from epistle to epistle, confirming biblically each and every time the specific mystery pertains to those we read predestined, foreknown, called, justified, and glorified. My purpose is to drive home the theological concept in brief which Paul has been undoubtedly teaching the redemption of Israel, the destruction of some of Judah, and the reuniting of a remnant of the house of Judah and the house of Israel precisely as conveyed and recorded for us at Hebrews 8.8. Paul's warning not to be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit deserves our attention. Philosophy as used here is used only once in the New Testament. It is number 5386 and this is what it says from Strong's. 1. Love of Wisdom A. Used either of zeal for a skill in any art or science, any branch of knowledge. Used one time in the New Testament of the theology or rather theosophy. Theos is equal to God. Sophia is wisdom, that is, Theos, God, Sophia, wisdom, God's wisdom, or divine wisdom. Now let me start over. Used in the New Testament of the theology, or rather the theosophy, of certain Judaicas, Christiano ascetics, which busied itself with refined and speculative inquiries into the nature and classes of angels, into the ritual of Mosaic law and the regulations of Judaica tradition respecting practical life. Now, who does that definition fit? Christ said in Matthew 23:2 that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Could this be another reason they were so insistent to learn who Christ was? The nature and classes of angels that he might belong to. Turn to 1 John 2.22. He says, Who is a liar but he that denies Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Turn to 1 John 4.2-4. And I'll read from both the King James Version and the Amplified Version. This is what it says in the King James. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I'll stop there and I'll go to the Amplified. Amplified really kind of blows it up and expands it, and it's not uh, too bad. So let's read it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, speaking through a self-proclaimed prophet, in brackets. Instead, test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets and teachers have gone out into the world. By this you know and recognize the Spirit of God, every spirit that acknowledges and confesses, in brackets, the fact 
that Jesus Christ has actually, in brackets, come in the flesh as a man, in brackets, is from God. God is its source, in brackets. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, acknowledging that he was come in the flesh but would deny any of the Son's true nature, in brackets, is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. Little children, believers, dear ones, in parentheses, you are of God and you belong to him and have already overcome them, the agents of the Antichrist, in brackets, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now turn, if you will, to Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Let's return to 1 John chapter 2, and we will this time begin with verse 18 and conclude at 22. Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, that same has not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I read verse 23 as well. John and Paul are warning of those professing a theology which denies that Jesus is the Christ. You see, they're wondering, is he God? Is he an angel? Or is he the Son of God? Or the Son of Man? What is his nature? What class of angels, if he's an angel, does he belong to? Paul is warning not to be spoiled with this vain philosophical deceit. According to Paul and John, if one does not confess Christ, the Messiah and Redeemer, has come in the flesh, we are to consider them an Antichrist, not hold them up and say, Behold, God's chosen people. What part of this warning is overcomplicated or somehow too difficult for much of the modern church world to understand, much less accept as even worthy of heeding the warning? I'll tell you what part the part which does not fit their world view. That's right. Let's face it. Their world view is that view which decides whether Paul or John has any authority to tell the modern church that someone could be an antichrist. Be not conformed to this world deceit is what we're instructed. And yet, they will not cease from their diabolical insistence upon their Judeo-Christian association or affiliation. Now, I suppose someone at this point is going to say, what in the world is this all about, Doug? We don't believe, and we've never professed, that Jesus was not the Son of God. I'm trying to bring about the same point that Paul, 
Peter, John, Stephen, all were doing. Go with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul tells Timothy in Timothy 3.16, quote, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 Justified in the Spirit. John 1.32 and 3 This theology of Paul needs to be recognized. But of course it is not. And it's not just Paul. It is Peter. It is John. It is James. And it's Stephen, all preaching the same gospel. God, as used in this scripture in 1 Timothy 3.16, is Theos. And it is interesting that this word God was in all the English translations for nearly four centuries, from just around 1500 when printing began, until right near the turn of the century to 1900. If your Bible contains the word he or who in that scripture, let me read it. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Or who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, etc. If your Bible contains the word he or who, you need to go to verse 15 for the context to find who the he or who is. And it is, of course, God. Just as we find in Philippians 2, 5 through 7 and Hebrews 1, 3. God was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 1. In the form and the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. In Hebrews 2, 16 to 17, we read, For verily he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. It was necessary for God to take on the seed of Abraham. Verse 17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Who, may I ask, needed reconciliation? And what do we find here? The phrase to be like unto his brethren cross-references to Philippians 2.7 and also 2.6. You recall it says, Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Do not lose sight of the fact this message begins with an email exchange by a sister extolling the virtue that the Jews are God's chosen people. So in spite of what they disbelieve, which is contrary to what Christ said they should believe, and Peter and Paul and John, James, Moses and the prophets, she and millions of others may very well die in their sins for disbelieving these theologically based warnings. And the brother who does not believe that the Son is God is in the same condition. Instead, they wish to believe deceivers. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. Once again, I stress the importance of the knowledge of the mystery. It is the mystery Peter conveyed in part in Acts 2, 22-39 and 3, 11-26 and 4, 8-12 and which Stephen conveys in Acts 
7, 1 through 53, and Paul conveys in Acts 13, 15 to 41. There is no way we can go to each of those at this time, but all of you can go there on your own. The mystery begins, they all convey with Abraham and continues to his descendants today. There is no escaping, and there should be no disregarding it any longer. And there certainly, as the scripture told us, there is no shame in it. The reason is, understanding it is, most significant aspect of the theological underpinning. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob proposed to Jacob Israel at Exodus 19. He made her his wife. He divorced her at Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 8 and 14. 2 Kings 17:13-18 has another record. I explain this in brief in part 3 of Hosea's series titled Betrothal and Remarriage. I continue to attempt to help us become better at explaining why this is so important because every one of these apostles consistently did just that. If God did not come in the flesh, and the image of the Son, Jesus Christ, Israel could not be remarried by God and thus would not have been redeemed. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 should be underlined or boxed in your scriptures. These four verses, just box them off so you can read them again and again. Just as Jeremiah 3 directs you to. The Pharisees... The Judaics, as Strong's definition related, in spite of their supposed knowledge and adherence to the law, could not accept and receive that God could indeed come and remarry Israel. Thus, they, and only some of them, the Judaics, rejected the Redeemer and Messiah as God. Paul told them at Romans 7, 1-4, how this not only could be possible, but indeed now emphatically is. Romans 7, 1-4 Know you not, brethren, or I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him whom is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Did the Son die? to fulfill the promise of remarriage? The law in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, as reiterated by Paul in Romans 7, 1-4, does not say the son dying frees the bride to remarry, does it? No, it does not. Why are these scriptures ignored? Who is the husband? We know that is Yahweh, Isaiah 54 tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah, what the Judaics in all their philosophical undertakings rejected. Verse 4, Fear not, thou shalt not forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. How does a married woman become a widow? When a husband dies, 
God says in Isaiah 54.5, which is the next verse, For thy maker is thine husband. End quote. Well, who made Jacob Israel? Who made Israel the maker? Yahweh. Continue verse 5. The Lord Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. End quote. If Christ is not God, you, Israel, are not redeemed. Isaiah 48, 16-17 says that he did not declare this in secret. If Christ is not God, he is a liar, and I know Yahweh is not. If Christ is not God, Yahweh let his son be sacrificed, while disallowing Abraham from doing the same. Therefore, he is a child sacrificer, just like the children of Israel are doing today, sacrificing their children because Judaics are assisting Israel's sin through legislation promoting laws of abortion, usury, and a host of unrighteous decrees. Please, do not be a doubting Thomas as John 20:27 20, conveys, but rather proclaim as did Thomas at 20:28. 20, my Lord and my God. Now, please hear this. If you are attending a church who continues to claim Jesus is a Jew, in equivalent with those calling themselves Jews today, then you are accepting their Pharisaical, Judaical doctrine and theology which believes not Jesus is the Son, and certainly not the Father. But Doug, we don't believe that Jesus isn't the Son. And some Jews do profess Jesus is the Messiah, or, or Jesus is the Son. After all, they're Messianic Jews, etc. Let me say this to you. Before your church or pastor invites the next rabbi to address the congregation. Make sure that he be asked whether he has confessed and repented of his sins. Confess that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but is the God of Jacob Israel, who has redeemed his people, Jacob Israel, by his death, burial, and resurrection, and been baptized in this name for the remission of sins. If he says he has, I would caution you yet, because he recites the Kol Nidra, which is an annulment of vows to be made throughout the year. If he has acknowledged and accepted Jesus Christ, he would be called a Christian, not a Jew, not even a Messianic Jew. Do not be fooled or deceived as Christ, Peter, Stephen, Paul, and John have all admonished us. Now, two additional things in closing. First, I'd like us to go to Second John, verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ 
has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. If you have now listened this far and have had your ears open to listening, this is the part that you will either turn it off or you will allow to enter in. And I specifically held this after the leading of the Spirit to the end of this message that none would be offended and turned away. And I could be wrong for having done that. In fact, I may be held accountable for having quenched the Spirit in the first place. And therefore it would not have been. We are now approaching a time when we are just a mere 20 year generational period away from it being nearly 100 years since Louis Finkelstein, head of the Jewish Theological Seminary, stated, and I quote, Judaism, Pharisaism, became Talmudism. Talmudism became medieval rabbinism and medieval rabbinism became modern rabbinism. But throughout these changes in name, the spirit of ancient Pharisees survives unaltered from Palestine to Babylonia, from Babylonia to North Africa, Italy, Spain, France and Germany, and from these to Poland, Russia, and Eastern Europe generally. Ancient Phariseeism has wandered, demonstrates the enduring importance which attaches to Phariseeism as a religious movement. End quote. Rabbi Adolf Moses published in 1903 by the Louisville section of the Council of Jewish Women, states, quote, Among the innumerable misfortunes which have befallen the most fatal in its consequences is the name Judaism. Worse still, Jews themselves who have gradually come to call their religion Judaism. Yet neither in biblical nor post-biblical, neither in Talmudic nor in much later times is the term Judaism ever heard. The Bible speaks of the religion as Torah Yahweh, the instruction or the moral law revealed by Yahweh, in other places as Yerath Yahweh, the fear and reverence of Yahweh. These and other appellations continued for many ages to stand for the religion. To distinguish it from Christianity and Islam, the Jewish philosophers sometimes designated it as the faith or belief of the Jews. It was Flavius Josephus, writing for the instruction of the Greeks and Romans, who coined the term Judaism, in order to pit it against Hellenism. But Hellenism was understood, the civilization comprising language, poetry, religion, art, science, manners, customs, institutions, which had spread from Greece, its original home over the vast regions of Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Christians eagerly seized upon the name, the Jews themselves, who intensely detested the traitor Josephus, refrained from reading any of his works. Hence the term Judaism, coined by Josephus, remained absolutely unknown to them. It was only in comparatively recent times, after the Jews became familiar with modern Christian literature, that they began to name their religion Judaism. End quote. Rabbi Morris N. Kurtzer, Look Magazine, June 17, 1952. Quote, 
The Talmud consists of 63 books of legal, ethical, historical writings of the ancient rabbis. It was edited five centuries after the birth of Jesus. It is a compendium of law and lore. It is the legal code which forms the basis of Jewish religious law, and it is the textbook used in the training of rabbis, end quote. Michael Rodkinson, in his book titled History of the Talmud, quote, Is the literature that Jesus was familiar with in his early years yet in existence in the world? Is it possible for us to get at it? Can we ourselves review the ideas, the statements, the modes of reasoning, and the thinking on moral and religious subjects, which were current in his time, and must have been evolved by him during those thirty silent years when he was pondering his future mission? To such inquiries the learned class of Jewish rabbis answer by holding up the Talmud. Here, say they, is the source from whence Jesus of Nazareth drew the teachings which enabled him to revolutionize the world. And the question becomes, therefore, an interesting one. To every Christian, what is the Talmud? The Talmud, then, is the written form of that which in the time of Jesus was called the traditions of the elders, and to which he makes frequent allusions. End quote. Well, I ask you, what sort of book is it? Yet in spite of the voluminous record of the origins of this people, the pusillanimous filth in their 63 religious books of the Talmud, and their rejection and denial of the redemption of Israel by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, the modern church the world over insists on connecting themselves at the hip in an apparent desire to die in their sins. That's a strong statement, I know, but I'm going to stand on that, invoking the words of Christ in Matthew 7, 20-23. You can read those on your own. Beware, Christian, lest you lose your reward. You have again been warned. Once again, I remain thankful for the opportunity to minister under those of the New Covenant, as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.